Thanks for listening in today to our Friday broadcast of Abiding in the Word with Dave Love, Senior Pastor of Calvary Castle Rock. Today, we will be continuing our study in the book of Genesis. So let's join Pastor Dave now. Soon your trials will be over. The sons of Benjamin were uh, Bela, Becker, Ashbel, Gerah, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppet. Okay, it's Muppim. Hoopim, Ard. So you have 11 there, including Benjamin. He had 10 kids, so that's 11, counting Benjamin. So 11 plus 52 equals 63. These were the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan was Husham. So he only had one son plus himself. That's two. So two plus 63 is 65. The sons of Naphtali were Jaziel, Guni. That's a strange one. Uh, Jesser and Shalim. So now you have five. Five plus 65 is 70. So you have 70 in Egypt there. So these were the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and she bore these to Jacob, seven persons in all. So the total we're at now is 70. However, the next verse says 66. So look what it says here in verse 26. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body besides Jacob's sons, wives were 66 persons in all. And you're going, okay, we just counted 70. Now it's saying 66 because now it's subtracting some people. It says right here, all the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt. Well, who went with him? Well, Joseph didn't because he was already down there. And guess what? His two sons were also born in Egypt, did not go down with him. So now you have to subtract three from 70. He gets 67. And then it says, who came from his body. You know who didn't come from his body? Himself. (laughs) Jacob. So that's why we have 66. I don't know why we're going through these calisthenics of math and things like that. Um, But this is how we get to that right there, 66 persons in all. And so when you subtract Jacob and Jacob's son, uh, Joseph, that's in Egypt with his two sons, you get to 66. But then verse 27, just to add to confusion. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob went to Egypt were 70. Yes, because Jacob went into the house of, uh, also went to Egypt And he's of the house of Jacob, even though he is Jacob and it all comes from him. He's still of the house of Jacob and it's including now his, his son and his two sons. So now we have 70. So we have a total of 60 persons who came from Jacob's body that traveled to him to Egypt, but of the totality of the house of Jacob, there's 70. I hope that is clear. And if it's not, blame God. So anyway. Now, there is some confusion because in Acts 7.14, Stephen, in his great defense before the Sanhedrin, says that there were 75 who went into Egypt, but that's because he's quoting from the Septuagint, and there's a few other folks that are listed there in the Septuagint. They add five more grandsons of Joseph that were born in Egypt. So the number depends on who you count and who you don't, and so uh, it's not a 
contradiction. It's, it's just a different way of doing math. Sometimes when we read genealogies, sometimes when we read a list of names and things like that, it could be kind of like, what's the point? You know, um, don't know much about them. They're mentioned here, but that's all that's mentioned of them. You don't learn anything else about them. And so sometimes when you go through this, you, you have a tendency to wander as you're reading the names and everything else. And I have a tendency to do that as well, you know, and then I'm reminded of something. Every person in this world matters. Every person that ever has lived matters. And so when I read that name, that person matters. In Matthew chapter 10, we read this in verse 28. Jesus is speaking here and he says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body. And so he's talking to his disciples and he's let them alone and said, don't worry about the persecution that comes your way. You shouldn't worry about someone who can harm the outside. What you should worry about is someone who can not only harm the outside, but the inside, your soul. Be worried about him. And that would be God. Okay, fear God. You don't have to fear man. When you put your trust in God, you don't have to fear man because man can only do something to the outside, to the body. Yeah, he might be able to take your life, but guess what? God has your soul and absent from the body, present with the Lord, the Bible tells us. So we really have nothing to worry about once we die. God's got that taken care of. And so he's trying to encourage them and say, don't worry about that. Understand that God's got this. He's got your soul. And then he goes on to explain further of what this means. And he says, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? And, and when you read that, when you read anything, any sort of explanation from Jesus himself, he kind of goes where you think is a rabbit trail and you're going, what does that have to do with anything of the killing? Now he's talking about sparrows. And he's going, what does sparrows have to do with me not fearing anybody? Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? Okay. But the very hairs of your head, are they all numbered? I didn't know that. But apparently they are. And he says, do not fear, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. And, and you kind of have to sit back and go, what are you talking about? But as you dwell on it, you go, oh, I understand this now. Sparrows are not very valuable. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 12, it tells us that even though we're told here, two sparrows are sold for a copper coin, like a penny. In Luke 12, it tells us that, that, four, that five sparrows are sold for two copper coins. What does that mean? It means this, that sparrows are so invaluable that they're not worth very much that if you buy two, I'll throw in an extra sparrow. And if he knows the very hair on your head, what does that tell you about God? He is a God of detail. He knows everything about you. So if he knows when a sparrow falls to the ground, if he knows how much a sparrow even costs and who even buys 
A sparrow, two sparrows for a copper coin. If he knows that when one falls to the ground and he knows the very hairs on your head and aren't you more valuable than the sparrow? Yeah, then he knows everything about you. The evidence is if you think that you're worthless, God says that you're not. And he knows everything about you. And in order to know everything about you means that he has invested in you and he pays attention and he knows everything about you because God does not create junk. You're a value to him. And because you're valued to him, he has sent his son to die for you. That's how valuable you are to him. And because he has done this, How could you not receive that? How could you not now live for him? And when you begin to entertain thoughts, I'm junk, I'm trash, nobody cares. That's a lie from the enemy. And you can choose to go by the evidence of God's word and what he has done by sending his son. Or you could choose to go by how you feel. And that's going to lead you to a very bad place. And that place that you feel and you go down, there's no evidence to that. It's only based on feeling. And your feeling is incorrect. And feeling doesn't lead you to truth. God, who is truth, will lead you to truth. And that's grounded and based on his word. Every name has value. Jesus himself said that um, there'll come a time where you're going to understand in his word, every jot and tittle, the spaces between the letters, there is more behind his word than you're ever going to understand. And you're not going to understand it until you're on the other side of heaven. That means that some of the names that we read as a bridge to get to this important person that we see our narration of in God's word, that person is very valuable. And on the other side of heaven, I personally believe that we're going to hear about that person, their testimony, who they were, why they were even listed in God's word. And I guarantee you, it's important. It's important. And every one of you here is important and God loves you very, very much. And so I want you to understand that. And so here in verse 28, we begin with Judah's mission. And it says, then he sent Judah before him to Joseph. Judah's, Judah is seen here being uh, playing a more prominent role now than the first, second, or third born. That would be Reuben, Simeon, and, and uh, Levi. Okay, he's the fourth born, Judah is. Um, and he is sent for this purpose, to point out the way to Goshen. Judah was to point the way. And then comes the arrival, and they came to the land of Goshen. Now, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum tells us that the rabbinic commentary, the Midrash Rabbah, sees this area of scripture as Joseph receiving the kingdom before Judah. And they see this as messianic. This refers to the Messiah. The son of Joseph will precede the Messiah, who is the son of David through Judah. And this is what most likely what the rabbis believed at the time of Jesus. And so this went two, uh, went, went one of two ways. Because the scriptures and prophecies show a suffering Messiah riding upon a donkey and other scriptures, 
And then we also see prophecies and other scriptures that show the Messiah as a conquering king. The rabbis usually are fall into two camps. Now, I personally believe, and I would submit to you, that what that means is that the biblical solution is that the Messiah comes twice. And that's what we teach here, and this is what we see in the scriptures. However, the rabbis gave two other solutions. One solution was that the nature of the coming Messiah would depend on the spiritual status of Israel. If Israel is righteous then the Messiah is going to come as a conquering king riding on the clouds. If Israel's unrighteous, the Messiah will come to suffer riding on a donkey. The second uh, solution is that there would be two Messiahs, one to suffer and die for the line of Joseph and one to conquer and rule from the line of David. Okay, so these are the two camps that they had. So in verse 29, it says, So Joseph made ready his chariot, went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him, fell on his neck, and wept on his neck a good while. It's been 22 years. Been 22 years since Jacob has seen Joseph. I'm sure they had a very long hug. I'm sure they wept over each other for a long time. This is indeed a miraculous reunion. And Israel says to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face because you are still alive. That is his way of saying my life is now complete. The Lord can now take me at any time. I find this interesting that Jacob had Joseph in his life for 17 years before he was taken away. And now that he is, they have been, there's this reunion, he's going to have Jacob is going to have Joseph in his life for another 17 years. Before he dies. Verse 31. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for their occupation has been to feed livestock and they have brought their flocks, their herds and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? that you shall say your servant's occupation has been one with livestock from our youth. Even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, I want to make this clear. That doesn't mean that the Egyptians uh, didn't have a lamb or two in their home or didn't have a goat or didn't have a cow or, or something like that at their house. What it means is that those who had the occupation where they, that's all they did was take care of sheep or take care of goats or take care of huge, uh, large amounts of animals like cattle. To them, those people were an abomination to them, wanted nothing to do with them. Okay. And so this is one of the reasons why uh, Joseph is prepping his brothers. When you meet Pharaoh, tell him that you are shepherds because he will know what that means and he will know that he's going to bring you to an area that the where the rest of the Egyptians don't live, okay? And if he does that, again, there's that segregation, whether Joseph knows it or not, okay? Whether Jacob knows it or not, but in order to keep that line of uh, of Israel pure, you need to be segregated. You need to be out of the, the majority of area that the Egyptians live so there's no intermarriage. But 
because you say that this is who you are, they're going to want nothing to do with you. Did, did I make that clear? Okay. I appreciate nodding your head, even if I didn't. Um, so they have a problem with shepherds. And so they're an abomination to the Egyptians. And so, uh, so again, what we're going to find out is that this Pharaoh gets excited about that. And he goes, hey, I also have flocks. I also have sheep, which tells us he's not an Egyptian. He's a Hiscox king, which is a king from Asiatic descent, meaning that at this time, the Egyptians have been taken over by another kingdom. Even though they're still Egyptians, it's these Hiscox kings that are ruling. And for them, no big deal. It's one of the reasons why, remember, if you go back here to chapter 43 here, it says um, when, when Joseph ha- invited him to his house and then served his brothers, we read this, it's so, it says in verse 32, so they set him a place by himself, that means Joseph, and them, and them by themselves, meaning the brothers, okay, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, okay? Because the Egyptians don't eat with foreigners. Joseph's a foreigner. They're not going to eat with him. And the brothers are a foreigner. They're not going to eat with him either, okay? So, again, this kind of shows us at this place that they will not eat with foreigners. So these Hiscock kings, guess what? even though they have um, all these other flocks and things like that, and they have no problem interacting with Joseph and his man coming in, the Egyptians will not, again, showing that this king is not an Egyptian, okay, is not an Egyptian. So, so again, it's interesting to me that they're going to go to this area. They're going to settle in the Nile Delta region. I'll show you a picture here in a moment. Um, and, and it's away from where all the other Egyptians are living, at this time, okay? It's also interesting to me that the Word of God has a lot to say about shepherds. We know Abraham was a shepherd. Jacob is a shepherd. King David was a shepherd. Jesus himself calls himself what? The good shepherd. And we who put our faith in him are his sheep. He is a good shepherd, and he gives his life for the sheep. I would submit to you that Egypt represents the world, and the shepherd is an abomination to the world. That is why it is today as well. Jesus, the good shepherd, is an abomination to the world. The world wants nothing to do with the good shepherd or his sheep. And we are here to be a light. We are here to be a witness. But just like with them, they want nothing to do with shepherds. I would say it's the same thing today in this world, that this world wants nothing to do with the good shepherd. Starting here in chapter 47, verse 1. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father, my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. And indeed, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. So he didn't take all his brothers. He only took five of them. We don't know which five that was. God doesn't reveal that to us. And it says, Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land, because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of 
of Goshen. So up to this point, Pharaoh has not been told that Joseph's brothers are shepherds. Um, for this reason, it's better to keep them segregated away from the Egyptians since shepherding was an abomination to the Egyptians. And so by instructing his brothers to make sure that you say that you're shepherds, this is now going to lead Pharaoh to say, hey, yeah, this is probably a good place for you to go, the land of Goshen. All right. So even though Joseph, uh, Pharaoh told him, whatever you say will be like I said it. Still, Joseph doesn't come to him and said, yeah, I told him to go to Goshen. Don't really need your approval or anything like that. He still kind of says, hey, I've kind of led them there, but you know, kind of what do you think? And he's thinking, yeah, that's a good place for him to go. That's a good place for him to go. So the word Goshen here in the Hebrew means uh, drawing near. And this is in the lower region of the Nile Delta River here. So I have this uh, wonderful little map here. Um, and so you can see here where Beersheba is at the very lower end, right over here, right before they cross into uh, uh, into uh, Egypt area. And so this is the, the River Delta area right here, Goshen. Okay, this is where Cairo is right here. Memphis is right up here. Thebes is up here. This is where the majority of Egypt dwelt was right in here. And so as the Nile goes through here and it splits off into like five different rivers that uh, makes this very fertile down here and very green, um, this is where most of the agriculture was being done around Egypt. And so when uh, there's no snow and the river kind of dries up and just kind of trickles down, then all this area that you see is green is not able to uh, produce uh, any of their... Um, fields of, of corn and, and, and grain, I should say, and things like that. So, um, so again, it's dry and famine has hit everywhere. And this is probably very a little area of here that's green down here. But they're not going to up and move everything and move everything down here and try and, you know, live down here. They're just staying where they are and it has dried up. And remember, they already have a plan in place. Because the seven years are so plentiful, they, they went and they, they took the grain and they, they stored it for this particular time, okay? And so they have been taken care of at this point. They could stay where they are and they're being given grain, as we're going to see right now how that all happened. But, the, uh, but um, Jacob and his band are going to go were coming over here because this, Averis, it says, was a one-time capital of Egypt, and that's probably where the capital was at that time. So this is where they were going. So a great uh, number of people also dwelt in this area here and up this river and all that kind of stuff. And so, but way down here, it wasn't really inhabited very much, okay? And so this is where they're going to go, and this is where um, Israel is going to become a nation, is in that lower part of Egypt. And so... We see that, that that is the place that they are going to go. And so in verse 5, it says, And Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your fathers and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock as well. And so again, he this again shows that this is one of the Hiscock kings because he shouldn't have these flocks and herds um, if he was an Egyptian. So, verse 7, Then Joseph brought in his father Jacob, set him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't bless Jacob. Jacob blesses 
Pharaoh. This would have been some sort of prayer that he would prosper and that God would give him many children and all those kind of things. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? That wraps up this Friday edition of Abiding in the Word with Pastor Dave Love. Join us again on Monday as we continue our study in the book of Genesis. If you live in the area of Castle Rock and are looking for a church to call home, be sure to come by and visit us. We meet Saturdays at 5 p.m. and our Sunday service times are at 9 and 11 a.m. A combined junior and senior high class meets at 5 p.m. on Saturday evenings And on Sunday mornings, high school meets during the 9 a.m. service, and the junior high meets at the 11 a.m. service. Our young adults ministry, Arise, meets every Friday evening at 6.30 p.m. at the church. Child care is offered for all our weekend services. Calvary Castle Rock is located right off of I-25 and East Wolfensburger Road, directly behind Jack in the Box and the Shell gas station. For more information about us or this radio ministry, please visit our website at calvarycr.com or download our free mobile app from the Apple App Store or Google Play. You can also call the church office at 303-663-2514. We are so blessed you've joined us today. Until our next time together, we want to encourage you to always be abiding in the Word of God. 